Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me as we kick off another week of Cresta in the Afternoon. And trying to get my glasses on here, which they're not going on very easily under the headphones. It's quite a strange sight uh, to see my glasses tied up into the headphones, but that's what's going on right now. All right, <laughs> let me tell you where we're going today's program. Now that I've got my glasses in place. Picking up on a theme that Pope Francis has recently uh, referred to, and it's the purpose of, it's the principle of fraternal correction. Uh, That is, again, brothers who are able to properly challenge one another. Uh, And also why that becomes more difficult when there's a loss of a sense of sin. Matthew chapter 18 uh, contains probably the longest uh, biblical instruction on this question of uh, fraternal correction and how you you know you owe it to the person who has quote offended you you owe it to him to let him know that that's part of his growing in the faith it's also your ability to confront and challenge is part of your growing in the faith so we're going to talk about that today with uh, Dr. Stephen White executive director of the Catholic Project at Catholic University of America this also refers back to a 1946 radio address of Pope Pius XII, where he had diagnosed one of the great problems in modern society is a loss of a sense of sin. It's hard to offer fraternal correction when the brothers involved don't have a common understanding of sin. So that's coming up. Also, we're going to spend time with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, author of The Mystery of Israel and the Church. It's a three-volume work. We're going to look at St. Paul's statement in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, that the gift and calling of God are irrevocable, and that these this means, then, the promises and covenant of Israel remain alive to this day, to some degree. What does that mean for Catholics? I think most Catholics would say God's done with the Jewish people, right? They rejected Jesus in the first century, and so they'll go on the ash heap of history, and then it's the Church that's the big deal. We're going to talk about the error in that. And then in the second hour, Steve Ray joins us. We're going to look at the mysteries of the rosary, the who, what, when, where, why of each of the mysteries. So stay with me. Right now, though, we go to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, October 23rd. It's the Feast of St. John of Capistrano. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avimaria.edu. President Biden and Pope Francis are discussing the conflict in the Middle East. The White House says the two leaders spoke by phone Sunday. Along with condemning the attack by Hamas on Israeli civilians, the White House said the president affirmed the need to protect civilians in Gaza. For its part, the Vatican says the Pope stressed that the need to identify paths to peace. U.S. forces will be postured appropriately in the Middle East over concerns the war between Israel and Hamas could escalate into a wider conflict. We know Iran continues to support Hamas and Hezbollah. 
than in some cases actively facilitating these attacks and spurring on others who may want to exploit the conflict for their own good. That's what National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters. He said there's been an uptick of rocket and drone attacks by Iranian-backed proxy groups against military bases housing U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria. The Pentagon plans to send more air defenses to U.S. air bases in the region. Detroit police say the stabbing death of the president of a local synagogue was not linked to anti-Semitism. There are no other groups or anyone else at risk in regards to this particular incident. This suspect acted alone. Police say Samantha Wall was found stabbed multiple times Saturday morning. Wall was a former staffer for two Democratic Michigan politicians. The investigation is ongoing. And some striking union members are calling on UAW President Sean Fain to accept the same $500 paycheck they're receiving to show solidarity during the walkout. The union says Fain will continue to be paid his full salary, estimated to be above $200,000. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In a 1946 radio address, Pope Pius XII diagnosed one of the great problems in modern society, and his analysis has been repeated by uh, his uh, successor popes, but it's this, we've lost our sense of sin. Uh, Pope Francis recently has made the same point, warning us not to be like King David, who was blind to his own sin and required the prophet Nathan to open his eyes. Uh, Having people help us open our eyes is important, and it's the principle of fraternal correction that we come across. Uh, Matthew 18 has the most elaborate uh, reference to it in Scripture, but it's part of St. Paul's one another instructions. Uh, So it's important for us to get a grasp of what, what is it, what does fraternal correction mean? And how difficult is it when you're part of a culture that no longer shares a common understanding of sin? With us right now to help us understand that is uh, Dr. Stephen White. He's executive director of the Catholic Project at Catholic University of America and a fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can follow him on Twitter at Stephen uh, underline P underline White. And we'll have that linked for you in the Crusted Guest Archives, too. Stephen, good to have you with me. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Al. Well, let's, let's look at this. Um, it seems clear from both history and from Scripture that Christians in the first century had, to some degree, a lively sense of fraternal correction, um, you certainly see St. Paul engaging in that uh, in his epistles. Um, and we would say that the Christian Church shared a common understanding of what it meant to be a brother, common understanding of who God was, common understanding of what human frailty was about and what sin was about. Uh, we're living in a day and age where it's rather difficult um, Sometimes I think to correct a brother because you and the brother don't share a common understanding of moral failing. Go ahead and pick that up. Yeah, so the idea of fraternal correction obviously is, is important, as you said, um, 
but to elaborate on, on the, the point you're making, um, if we don't have a sense of what it means to be a brother, what makes us a brother, what makes us in a certain kind of relationship to another people um, or, or to another person, if, if we lose a sense of, of what authority we have and to which authority we answer, then the whole idea of fraternal correction starts to sort of break down. Right. Here, here's what, a way to, to um, maybe explain concretely what I mean by that. Um, if I see a stranger on the street and I say, you shouldn't do that thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. He may listen to me, he may not, but what's it to him? I'm just some stranger he meets on the street. All right, if I say that to my son, that's a different matter. I'm an authority, I'm his father, and he, he knows, understands, in some way he has some relationship to me in which I am the one who tells him to do something. And same if I say it to a, a good friend of mine or to a brother of mine. There's a, a relationship of trust and hopefully of love and, and a shared sense that we are accountable to one another and under some other authority, uh, uh, God's authority, the authority of the state, the authority of our own father. Right? There, there's mm-hmm. a whole web of relationships that we understand that we belong to. So that when I come to my brother who knows I'm his brother, and then I come um, as someone who's trusted and someone who loves him, and I offer correction, that correction has a different weight. But if we lose all that context, if we lose a sense of who we are in relationship to one another, if we lose a sense of authority, man's authority over man or God's authority or the authority of a father or the authority grounded in the love of a brother for a brother or a neighbor for a neighbor, if we lose all that context, then our ability to correct one another in love and charity is lost. It's just one guy saying something to another guy. Right. Why should right. I care? Yeah. And the, the, whole, the whole context in which fraternal correction makes sense and can, can, can move hearts and consciences, that context is lost. And... The appeal to authority here uh, doesn't carry much weight. Well, yeah. So one of the archetypal sort of exa- one of the typical examples of, of fraternal correction, and, w- and one I've used in, uh, as an example before, is the, the story from from Samuel, Second Samuel, when when the prophet Nathan comes to King David. Of course, King David had <clears throat> fallen in love with uh, Bathsheba, and the problem was Bathsheba was married, so King David arranged to have Bathsheba's husband sent off to the front lines where he was promptly killed, and then Bathsheba went into mourning for her dead husband, and when that was done, David swooped in and got himself a new wife. Right. So Nathan thought this wasn't so great, but he didn't want to just confront the king, so he came and he said, let me tell you a story. And he tells him the story about a rich man who's got many sheep, and he comes, and, and then he takes the, the, the little ewe from his neighbor who's poor, and he tells this whole sad story about someone who's rich and powerful and has a lot of things, who steals from the, the one thing that this poor man had. And King David is outraged. He said, this man must surely die, whoever this is. Yeah. Right? And Nathan says, you are the man. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly in that moment, David realizes this was a story about me, right? Uh-huh. I had everything. I'm yeah. the king. I'm the God's anointed one. And I took the one thing that Uriah the Hittite had, his wife, and I took his life. And, and he repents, right? But he's called back to this, this understanding of what he had become blind to, his own sin. But this presupposes that David is a godly man, a God-fearing man, a righteous man. Yes, he's someone who sinned, and he's become blind to and blinded by his own sin, but there's something there that he can be called back to. So that the words of the prophet that sort of uh, slap him out of his blindness and out of his ignorance call him back to something, um, and he's, he, he's convicted by this recognition that he has sinned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that, that doesn't work if there's nothing to be called back to. Right. Right. Um, if we don't have some sense of recognizing, David was not a man who recognized that there's a law, justice, or God's law under which he himself is subject um, Nathan's correction of the king would have had no no effect, no purchase if if 
David was a totally godless man. Right. And so this idea of fraternal correction, in a sense, what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to be a brother? Presupposes an understanding of, well, brothers are brothers because they share a father. Yeah. Right. In, in the natural sense, that can happen between me and my brothers and my family. But that also means that the, what when we encounter another person, human being to human being, at the most foundational level, um, we are we are sons and daughters of the same father. So that is the source of our sibling. If we lose a sense of God, if we lose a sense of God, then all we have is sort of one will against another. And this idea for fraternal correction isn't a calling someone back to a, a, a higher source of authority, a, a higher sense of justice, a higher sense of what we ought to be doing and what we're called to be. It's just an assertion of assertion of what I want against what you want. That's right. Or what I would would wish to happen against what you'd wish to happen. That's right. Yeah. There's no in, no intrinsic rightness or wrongness to what happened. It's just a matter of who has the capacity to impose the, his will on another. Uh, in a society which is losing that sense of fraternity and uh, losing the sense of uh, sin uh, based on an understanding of an authoritative creator God, uh, what is, what's the best way of approaching this? Um, what's the picture that we hold up that might uh, melt hearts and, and uh, help them understand the importance of sharing a common brotherhood, which again presupposes a common fatherhood? Um, if, if, if God said it, you, 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 you ought to do it, uh, no longer works, what does work? Well, there there are two ways. Um, the the first one is is this that you know the God has written His law in the hearts of men, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that's true whether we recognize it or whether we decide to try and forget it or ignore it or not. Right. So it's always the case that anyone can be perhaps through the help of grace, but also through through reason, be brought to recognize when they've committed some injustice, just sort of on a on a natural level, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but and, and that works. To a certain degree, I think it works less well these days because people don't believe such a thing as natural law, and they sort of not really don't believe it, but they sort of inoculated themselves against it. It's yeah. an idea they reject out of hand. But the most powerful and the most enduring, and I think the the, the way to call people back um, to to the sense of our what it means to be brothers and sisters under a common father, the the way that that cuts through all sort of the the noise and the skepticism and the relativism of today, is an image that that. Uh, um, is the image of the crucified Lord. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That kind of love, that kind of complete selflessness, that, that pouring out of self unde- for, for, those, for undeserving sinners, right? God didn't save us, God didn't suffer and die for us because we deserved it. In fact, he died for us precisely because we didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what made it love. And that kind of love, that kind of willingness to undergo the most horrible, horrifying tortures and, and, and suffering out of sheer love for we who are undeserving. That kind of thing, that kind of love, cruciform love, can cut through a lot of the noise and nonsense in the world. And that remains always the most compelling argument, if you will, and sort of, and it's, it's, it's an action and a recognition, but that's sort of the most compelling argument for the truth of the Catholic faith and for the truth of, of God's love for us. Yes. And that that love seen in the crucifix, experienced at the Mass, experienced in the Eucharist, um, or witnessed in the lives and actions of others, that kind of love remains compelling always and everywhere, I think. 
I, I remember, uh, I agree, by the way. I, I remember when I was an undergraduate, I was singing in Michigan State University Chorus, and we had to do a requiem by Luigi Carabini. I wasn't an active Christian at all, uh, though I'd been raised Catholic. And as we were singing this requiem, we're coming across, you know, the Dies Irae, the Day of Judgment, and all of a sudden it, it dawned on me that really, for 2,000 years, people actually believe this kind of thing. <laughs> and I, I, this picture then of Christ, whose death in some way uh, satisfied God's judgment, struck me as just really strange. And because of that, it, it, it beckoned me to look a little further into what it is. It is a strange thing to talk about the crucified Christ or to see this crucified figure. Um, and even in this age, uh, postmodern world, I still think it's a strange thing for people to see. And it begs question. It begs why? What is this? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very strange thing that we, we Christians, especially we Catholics, have as an image of our faith the body of an executed <laughs> right, right yeah. um, in his moment of death. Um, that's a strange thing. And that, that's, that the use of the image, the use of the crucifix, the way we use it now, developed over time. It, this was not a, a, a common emblem used by the early Christians, say, in the second century. Yeah. Um, but it's a beautiful thing, and I think it's, it's shocking. It still has the power to shock people to think, you know, what, what God would do such a thing for us? Who am yes. I that he would do that for us? Yeah, um, amen. Yeah. And what will I say to him when I meet him one day? Stephen, thank you. Wonderful talking with you again. Always out. Stephen White, this is a uh, essay he posted called Behold the Man. It showed up in the Catholic thing. We'll have it available for you in the online bookstore. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. We listen to all kinds of things, as the Pope says. The radio, the TV, we listen to our phones all kinds of other messages, but are we silencing ourselves enough that we may listen for God? The other thing we need to do is continue to educate ourselves on the faith. Are we listening to Catholic programming on a regular basis? Are we attending really good, healthy, faith-filled conferences to learn more from those who may be scripture scholars or apologists or maybe just a good talk from a spiritual leader or maybe watching a good video of a wonderful priest such as a Father John Ricardo? or a Bishop Barron or someone else. So continue to, as Father John Harden used to say, educate, educate, educate yourself in the Catholic faith. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Why is prayer a battle? Prayer is both a gift of grace and a determined response on our part, the Catholic Catechism tells us. It takes effort. Who is the battle against? Against ourselves and against the devil who does all he can to turn us away from prayer and God and union with God. If we do not live habitually according to the Spirit of Christ, we cannot pray habitually in his name. We pray as we live, says the Catechism, and we live as we pray. One of the most universal difficulties in prayer is distraction. The simple and most effective answer to distraction is to turn back to our heart, for distraction reveals to what we are attached. 
This humble awareness can prompt us to offer our hearts to the Lord for purification. This is Peggy Stanton, and this is the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. You and your spouse are invited to cruise with Royal Caribbean this January, along with Father Michael Schmitz, Archbishop Nauman, Al, Teresa, Dr. Ray, and many others. Get away with your spouse on a fun, relaxing, and rejuvenating cruise with inspiring speakers, daily mass, and endless memorable experiences. Father Michael Schmitz comments, you'll encounter an amazing community of couples and speakers, and most importantly, you'll encounter Christ. More details at AveMariaRadio.net. Just click the travel link. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas has, again, highlighted for many people um, the remarkable fact that Israel, as a state, as a nation-state, was dates from 1948, uh, technically. But the question is, what is the relationship of the biblical promises regarding covenant and land to the Jewish people? And again, I'm not saying that... uh, you know, I don't have the same attitude towards this that a lot of evangelical and Pentecostal preachers have that tells us that we can uh, calculate somehow by the return of Israel to the land in 1948 uh, that somehow we can return, you know, come up with the day and the hour of Christ's return. But I am concerned about this idea of the land because, frankly, uh, as a Christian for many years and as a Catholic for even more, uh, <laughs> I... I never give this, gave this a lot of thought. And yet, when you read Romans chapter 9 through 11, St. Paul gave all this a lot of thought. Romans chapter 11 begins, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And then he says, by no means. And then he goes and continues his argument. 
So what are those promises and uh, that were made to Israel under the Old Covenant? And um, in chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 29, uh, St. Paul also writes that the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. irrevocable. So what does that mean for the land? How should we see it? Well, you know, the, my guest, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, is Associate Director of Theology and Philosophy at Kendrick, Kendrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis. And I just came across an essay of his recently called The Return to the Land of Israel as an Eschatological Sign in the Light of Romans Chapter 11. It's, in a, uh, it's an essay in a collection called Contemporary Catholic Approaches to the People, Land, and the State of Israel. And I knew uh, Dr. Feingold's work uh, from his three-volume uh, uh, were called the mystery of Israel in the church, and again, uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, material here, a great amount of work. And I thought, if I had a question about the land and its current status in Catholic thinking, I don't know who else I would be better to talk with. And Dr. Fungal, great to have you here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Well, let, let's let's go to this. Um, and, before we go there, you make a you make a point in your essay that you you are talking about um, the land as an eschatological sign, and that you weren't really making uh, out to make any political statements uh, about this. Is that right? That's for sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a theologian. I'm um, looking at it from the point of view of um, Catholic theology, and and. And only that. No, I think that's good. It's good to get that on the table here, um, Mm -hmm. what the limits are of what we say. Uh, I I would venture to say that most Catholics, you know, again, at a popular level, would simply think of the Jewish people as, well, um, they had their chance uh, to accept Messiah. They didn't. And then God kind of moved on and has the church now, and that's what he's interested in. And, um, you know, that's, that's too bad, but, you know, Israel had its chance, and its disobedience meant it's now excluded from any special concern of God. And I say, that's, a, I think, a fairly popular understanding. Yeah, I think so. And, and, but as you said, then... That doesn't seem to square with what St. Paul says in Romans <laughs> um, chapter 11, verse 29, right. Right? that God's gifts and calling are irrevocable, and God is faithful even when human beings are unfaithful. Yes, and I think this is what is really fascinating and ex- exalting. I love this. Um, Technically, this idea that God has um, rejected Israel and replaced Israel with the Church is technically called supersessionism. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Tell, so tell us what a, that is. A technical term that theologians use. Yeah. Yeah. Just elaborate on that a bit for me. Sometimes, in simpler language, replacement theology. Sure. One could say. Okay. Very good. Um, you make the point in the essay here that it's in, that idea of replacement theology is incompatible with the biblical principle of God's fidelity, which transcends right. and is not annulled by human infidelity. 
Uh, you also point out that it's incompatible uh, with Romans 11, 28, and 29, which says that as regards election, the Jews are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And then you quote Nostratate 4, Nevertheless, God holds the Jews most dear for the sake of their fathers. He does not repent of the gifts he makes or the calls he issues, such as the witness of the apostle, which then goes to quote, Right, Romans and so that's 11. quoting again, or referring to yeah. um, St. Paul, Romans 11, 28, and 29. How? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, um, a foundation, it seems to me, for Catholic theology today, yeah. in reflecting on the significance of um, Israel in, um, in the Holy Land. And have, God hasn't rejected them, right. or revoked their covenant. How does that square with Catholic thinking through the ages. Um, so there's always a tendency, um, a human tendency, to oversimplify. Sure. And it's easy in this case, I think, to fall into a tendency like that. And so um, great theologians like Thomas Aquinas have always um, interpreted Romans chapter 11 as in the way that we just said, and then other verses of St. Paul that speak about the fidelity of God and the faithfulness of God. But generally, there was the widespread view that, yes, the Church had replaced the, um, the synagogue, or Israel, and therefore the promises um, given to Israel simply were transferred to the Church. And that's where over, um, it becomes oversimplified. And so the right... So this is going to take a little... Let me see if I can explain this yeah, go ahead. simply and clearly. The, um, it, the key, it seems to me, is to look at this from the point of view of biblical typology. So, in the Old Testament, many things um, that had a meaning in their own time and place point forward and prefigure Christ, the Church, and the sacraments. And so we can say the whole of Israel is not just events in Israel, like the manna in the desert, or the crossing of the Red Sea, or the um, Ark of the Covenant, but even the whole life of Israel, in some way, was prefiguring the Church. Mm. But that doesn't mean that it um, would lose its reason for being when Christ comes. It's done. So that's really, I think, the difficult thing to see, and the one I would want to most our listeners to come away with. That, so, um, yes, Israel was chosen, Abraham was chosen um, 2,000 years before the Incarnation, to be the forefather of a people in whom God would become man. And so Israel's mission was to be the people of the Incarnation, in whom God would become incarnate, and preparing the way for him. And now people might wonder, after he's become man, and, and founded his church, is there still a point to Israel's election? And we would say, yes. Yeah. They yeah. continue to point um, to God's covenant, and God's fidelity, and to um, the one who became flesh in their midst. Um, and they're a sign yeah, of God's providence um, till the end of time. That's how I would yeah. answer that. So um, the, the type, um, mm-hmm. again, in this case, the type being Israel, is not replaced by the reality right. that it prefigures, right? Um, right, but continues to point to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not by way of, you know, opposition, but precisely by way of um, preparation and fulfillment. And 
And it has its own reality um, that continues in the people um, descended from Abraham. Yeah. Is this ages. so? Is this been this has been championed over the last generation? It seems to me by uh, popes. I mean, this is is this right. kind of a new Absolutely. a new so, and deeper understanding of the faith than we had prior. Right. Yeah. So this is a beautiful example of what we theologians call development of doctrine. Yeah. Something that's been there from the beginning. We could see it in. In Revelation, um, such as the, the verses we said of St. Paul, or simply God's fidelity to his covenant. But it's something that, um, as the Church ponders her revelation, century after century, she comes to see in a deeper way. And, in, and very often it's events of history that help the Church to um, see things in a deeper way. And in this particular case, the incredible tragedy of the Shoah, or yeah. Holocaust, um, helps... I mean, often in history it's that way. It's a heresy, it's some denial of the faith that requires um, the Church to defend something that previously maybe hadn't, she hadn't um, um, searched as deeply because she didn't have to defend or, um, or come to terms with, um, as, as in the generation after World War II. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is. I mean, the the Shoah uh, has really been a, mm-hmm. a real shakeup for theology in general, Christian theology in general. But uh, in right. the Catholic setting, it's become also fruitful uh, in that it's right. forced us yeah, to so think. John Paul II would be yeah. the one, the Pope who most developed this, um, visiting several synagogues and um, making reference to um, Nostra Aetate, Second Vatican Councils. Um, document on, um, on Judaism, but then making it clear that that applies to contemporary Jews, yeah. and therefore Jews who live in Israel, as well as those in the diaspora throughout the world, and that they are still um, the, um, the sons of Abraham, not um, rejected by God, whose covenant has not been revoked. Hmm. Now, this is I mean, this pretty exciting they stuff. They'll have a... Mm-hmm. It's pretty exciting stuff when you think about it, uh, that we're seeing this happening uh, in the development of Catholic thought now. So, right, right. And then more recent popes, um, in particular Pope Benedict and um, Francis, have continued um, making those affirmations, um, if anything, even more strongly. And, um, and we have a series of documents also um, that develop that. And different dicasteries clarifying. Uh, Larry, hold it there. We've got to take a break. Come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, he's the author of a three-volume work called The Mystery of Israel and the Church. Uh, And then recently, though, I came across an essay of his uh, that has got me thinking about the reality of the land. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Pro-life across America, the people. 
It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. ChatGPT is the latest craze in artificial intelligence technology, and we've seen everybody from students to passengers to even teachers using it to assist in their work. In the last Ave Maria Radio Poll of the Week, we asked you if you think this is a good idea, and not surprisingly, the vast majority of you said no, you don't like where this is trending. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. Can your messy house lead to anxiety? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians states that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If you walk in the door at home and you are greeted by clutter, peace may be hard to find. A messy house can lead to cognitive overload. While we're trying to concentrate on one thing, clutter can distract. According to research, women may be more affected by this type of anxiety. Societal roles and expectations can enhance the stress. To be fair, other underlying mental health disorders can lead to more clutter, depression, hoarding, and OCD, just to name a few. However, clutter can sometimes lead to more creativity. Bottom line, don't let a messy house define you as a good or bad person. Take baby steps to negotiate with those responsible for messes to make change or hire a cleaning person. Check out the Journey Strong tab for more on clutter at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows. And and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane running for a slot machine you don't have a chance to win they're all fixed i know my uncle used to have slot machines ewtn live truth live catholic Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest is Dr. Lawrence Feingold. We are discussing uh, the return to the land of Israel and what is its theological significance uh, for Catholics. And uh, we pointed out that 
the event of the Shoah, the Holocaust, gave rise to much serious soul-searching on the part of Christian theologians, including Catholics, and um, there's been a rediscovery of, again, passages from St. Paul, which have often been kind of glossed over. And the key passage, and it's quoted in Nostra Aetate from the Second Vatican Council, and that is that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, and St. Paul says that in the context of a you know, three-chapter argument about the status of the Jewish people now that Messiah has come and that many within the Jewish community have rejected uh, Messiah. So St. Paul's saying, well, what, he's trying to answer the question, well, what becomes of the Jews in the future? And so it's been rather an exciting um, time, because if you believe that the gifts and calling of God are irre- irrevocable, and that uh, Israel still has an ongoing covenant and promises associated with that covenant, the land is certainly a part of Jewish identity. Now, Larry, before we go back to this in particular, I, I want to talk about what can we think, uh, how, how, should we, how does this uh, return to the land function for us uh, in eschatology? But before we go there, I, I want to say there's also a, a view that um, when we talk about Israel's having uh, an ongoing covenant with God, there are those who say, well, that means, therefore, that there need be no um, presentation of the gospel to Jewish people. And um, they ha- basically, they have their own thing. So don't bother them. <laughs> what do you say to that? Yes, obviously, I don't agree with that. I'm <laughs> right. Jewish origin, and I've become Catholic, and it's the greatest blessing in the world. <laughs> and, and so that's often called dual covenant theory. It's a kind of technical term. And the problem there is it's putting the two covenants on the same level in a way similar to replacement theology. And, and the point that I was trying to make earlier is that they're not on the same level at all. Right. How could it be? In other words, when if God becomes man and makes the new and eternal covenant— that is going to be on a level transcending um, a covenant preparing the people for the Incarnation. Right. And so they're not um, on the same level or plane. And Jesus became man for every human being whom he has redeemed on Calvary. And he's won the grace for every human being to receive um, all the graces that we receive during our life. And even if we don't know about that. Right. So I would say by the a twofold title, because he's the Son of God and because he redeemed us on the cross, every human being has the right to know about him and what he's done for us. And especially those for whom he came um, by way of an, an obligation of his own very promise um, to Abraham and to um, his descendants and such as David. Yeah, and so St. Paul, when he would uh, preach the gospel, would go first to the Jews in every particular place, the synagogue, and then he would present it to the Gentiles that were there. Mm, because they have a priority. So, yes, Jews, yeah. right. But of course, we have to be very um, respectful when we do that. Obviously, we don't want to proselytize, mm-hmm. but to evangelize. Right. And that means not putting any um, undue pressures, or um, not... Um, um, we can't fail to respect the dignity of their covenant, 
when we present the gospel. Right? So it's delicate to present the gospel, and it needs to be done in a way that really um, grasps um, the, we could say the glories of the chosen people that St. Paul enumerates at the beginning of chapter 9. He says, there's is the sonship, the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs, and from them has come um, the Messiah, Christ, God above all forever. Yeah. And so yeah. when we present the gospel to Jews, we want to do it in that way, as no straight talking makes clear. Yes, yeah, very good. Um, John, you, you quote John Paul II <clears throat> back from his uh, visit with the Jewish representatives of the Jewish community in Mainz, uh, West Germany, uh, November 17, 1980. And I had never seen this before, but he was making the point that the covenant uh, with Israel has never been revoked, and that he refers to the meeting of new covenant people of God with the old covenant people of God, and refers to it as a dialogue within our church between the first and the second part of the Bible. (laughs) I think that's that's really yeah. the, the the way we're talking about this. We're acknowledging that mm-hmm. there's a covenant there. It's real. Um, it's foundational. It it points, and what, what we're saying though is that it points uh, to this uh, new covenant or renewed covenant uh, mm-hmm. that we refer to. And so we're carrying on the conversation uh, with the Jewish people, not as outsiders but as people who uh, understand the covenant with God. And, uh, right. Yeah. I, do, you, yeah. do you think that, um, you know, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel in 1948, you, you take great care to, not to make sure that we're not necessarily trying to come up with a day and hour scenario here when right. Jesus will That's return. That's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because that can often be the way it's thought of in, evangel- in some evangelical circles. Right. And so I'm using the word, so I do call it an eschatological sign, but I'm using the word in a different way. And that's what I wanted and you to tell us. It can be an eschatological sign, even though it's centuries away from Christ's second coming. That's right. Because it's pointing in some way to his action. And an example of that was the destruction of Jerusalem 19 centuries ago. That was, Jesus uses that in his eschatological discourse as a kind of sign, tragic sign. Yeah. And, and so we could see this return to the land as um, um, also a sign, not, not tragic in itself, although accompanied by tragedy, which is the continued strife in the land. That's right. And so just for me, going to, we lived, uh, my wife and my, our family lived in the Holy Land um, for a year in the 90s. And it was, we lived in the old city, and walking distance from the Holy Sepulchre. It was such a joy to be in the, in the Holy Land, and for two reasons, because that's the land where Jesus you know, walked and did his mysteries, but also because it's the land of the old covenant of, of, um, of the people of Israel, and all of God's action in the old covenant. And the prophets often speak of um, yeah, exile as a... Um, and in some way as a, a penalty for infidelity to the covenant in different senses, but speak of the coming back to the land as a, um, a wedding, as it were, with the land and its people. And so it's beautiful to see in, the, in Israel today that wedding, as it were, of the land and its ancient people. Yeah. But of course it's tragic right, to see the continual 
pain sure. and, and, and conflict that accompanies it. Yeah, I, there's the picture of Isaiah in chapter 62, where he's talking about the relationship between the Lord who indwelt in the land and, and the, and the right. um, it, it, it's got nuptial imagery. It's really quite shocking. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's, let's talk about, you know, we have this terrible situation uh, in Israel right now, um, and Catholics obviously want to show due respect um, to the covenant. They want to show a due respect to this uh, return to the land as an eschatological sign. Uh, what does that commit them to in terms of the Jewish people in Israel now? Yeah. And I would want to be careful here. And so the Church allows different views on this, and you can, you can see the different views in that volume that you mentioned um, from which, um, in which my article is included. Mm-hmm. Right? So obviously, Catholics have different views on this. But I think we would want to see that. And well, I would, what I would want to say is that we can't simply um, see Israel um, as something, you know, without theological significance. Okay. Um, yeah. But what exactly that significance is, that's something that theologians can, can discuss. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. I see it in connection with um, a line from um, our Lord um, when he, um, this is from Luke's Gospel, um, chapter 21, verses 23 and 24. And he's here, he's uh, weeping over um, what he foresees will be the, the exile for 19 centuries of Jews from the land. And he says, great distress shall come upon the earth, wrath upon this people, they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles mm. until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Wow. Right? And so that was a prophecy, and it was, in fact, realized for 19 centuries, yeah. Um, yeah. an exile from the, from the land. But now that Jews have returned, it's interesting to ponder that last part of, of the verse, until the times, times of, of the, the Gentiles. Gentiles are fulfilled. Yeah. So yeah. I think the times yeah. of the Gentiles... Is, and Jesus speaks about, that's another eschatological sign, that the um, church will expand the, according to the missionary mandate and to the ends of the earth. So and there are other eschatological the signs, then, that, that right. are There's in the right. background of this discussion. The preaching of the gospel right. to the nations right. is one of them. Yeah. Right, exactly. And it doesn't mean that the end is about to happen any more than when we see earthquakes and national disasters, natural disasters or wars, that the end is going to be tomorrow. Yeah. Right? But there are signs that lift our gaze up from this world and enable us to see that there's a providential plan of God that remains very mysterious, but is real. Right, right. Uh, what would be, uh, are there any other uh, ongoing eschatological signs that you can point to? <laughs> yeah, so for me, a very interesting one <laughs> is... Um, the, um, the fact that in our time, so all through the history of the Church, there have always been um, Jews who have come to faith in, in Christ and have become Catholic. Um, but in our time, in the last um, 50 um, and more years, um, we've seen an acceleration of that process. Oh. Very often, the um, Jewish believers in Jesus um, don't um, make it all the way into the Catholic Church. And so there are many who are um, 
called Messianic Jews, right, right. who um, believe in Jesus the Messiah, but aren't um, um, don't see the the whole um, claim of the of the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Um, but so I think that's an eschatological sign as well that the Catechism speaks about in a very suggestive way. In number, uh, find it here. Yeah, yeah, I don't have it right in front of me either. So, yeah. Talking, yeah, um, you talking with Dr. Lawrence Feingold about the mystery of Israel and the Church, and in particular, discussion occasioned by uh, our attitude towards the land and the Jewish people. And uh, we've looked over there's other, uh, the return to the land is an eschatological sign, a sign pointing uh, to the future. Uh, you also have the... Um, uh, an acceleration of uh, Jewish people who have, in fact, professed Christ uh, as Messiah, uh, even though many times they don't come into full communion with the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. Did you get, yeah so did you the get... text is um, the Catechism 674. 674. And again, it quotes um, St. Paul's um, um, Romans 11. Yeah. And it says, The glorious Messiah is coming... Right, that would be the second coming, is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. So that's a quote from Romans 11. Yeah. For a hardening has come upon part of Israel in their unbelief towards Jesus. Yeah. In other words, St. Paul sees the fact that um, many of the Jews, and especially their leadership, didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah as also something mysterious, and that was also part in some way and mysteriously, of the divine plan. And a certain um, veil put um, until the time, right, when that veil would be taken away. That's right. That's right. Um, and he, yeah, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, St. Paul says, what will their acceptance mean? <laughs> Life from the dead. Right. Lawrence, we're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Can we talk again on this? Sure. I'll give you a call. Thank you. We'd love to. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Father Benedict Rochelle. Brothers and sisters, we got to tell the truth in this country. For heaven's sakes, I wouldn't want to go to a synagogue and find that they were having a Muslim service. I wouldn't want to go to a mosque and run into a Baptist service. I don't want to go to a Baptist church and find out that they're having mass. We've got to be honest to ourselves. We've got to be what we are. I'd rather a good old-fashioned, honest agnostic than a phony Christian any day of the week. There are reluctant agnostics. There are atheists who are searching for God, and they may find Him. But somebody who says they're doing something in the name of God and the name of Christ, and God and Christ have nothing to do with it, is violating this commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall not take my name in vain. 
The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Now, a point to, to bring up is that the recognition that the return to the land is a mar- an eschatological marker um, doesn't mean that one has to agree with all the uh, judgments uh, or tactics of uh, any present Israeli government. So let's make it clear that there's always... Um, there's always moral obedience required uh, by all those who have a covenant uh, with God. I'm Al Cresto. we got Steve Ray next hour. We'll talk a little bit about Israel with Steve, and we're also going to focus in on the mysteries of the rosary, October, the month of the rosary. So we'll look at the who, what, when, where, and why of the rosary mysteries. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me this hour, Steve Ray. You well know Steve. He's been a frequent guest with me here. And he leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, as you know, uh, over 200 times now. I thought while he's with me. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the situation in Israel. But Steve is also uh, an outstanding uh, teacher uh, on all things Catholic, and he just, in fact, uh, published a new study on the book of Genesis, a, a book, a substantial book. And I want you to know, we're going to take time this hour, though, to acknowledge um, October as month of the rosary. So what we'll do is we'll take a look at the mysteries of the rosary, anchor them in Scripture, and take a look at the importance of the rosary as a really basic form of catechesis. So that's coming up in this hour. But first, let's get to the headlines. Thanks, Alan. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, October 23rd. It's the Feast of St. John of Capistrano. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. An off-duty pilot is facing 83 counts of attempted murder for allegedly trying to crash an Alaska Airlines flight. A pilot who was deadheading, in other words, he was not flying the plane, but he was seated in the cockpit as a passenger, for some reason suddenly tried to shut the engines down of that passenger plane. NBC News' Tom Costello says the flight from Washington to San Francisco on Sunday diverted to Portland due to the incident. Police say the suspect, Joseph Emerson, tried to pull the fire extinguisher handles to shut off the engines. He was overwhelmed by the flight crew and remains behind bars. Two more hostages have been released by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. According to multiple reports, Hamas said it released the hostages Monday on humanitarian grounds. 
but a top advisor to the Israeli prime minister isn't buying it. Releasing two, and they want to project themselves as, I don't know, as a normal uh, political organization, as a humanitarian organization. But what is the truth? This is a brutal a terrorist organization. The hostages were identified as two Israeli women, and it follows the release of two American hostages Friday. The White House says it's a top priority to ensure Palestinians in Gaza receive urgently needed humanitarian aid. We're going to continue those efforts uh, going forward. It's important that the aid be sustainable, and that's what we're focused on. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby saying he was glad to see the first convoys of aid crossing over from Egypt to Gaza, but it's critical to keep the aid flowing. And police are still searching for a man accused of murdering a Maryland judge in his own driveway. Police say the public should remain vigilant while they continue to search for Pedro Argote. He's accused of shooting Judge Andrew Wilkerson in front of his own home. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. October, the month of the rosary. And each of the mysteries of the rosary commemorate a monumental event in the life of Jesus. And um, we're going to take time with Steve Ray to look at people, the places, the actions that are entailed in each of the mysteries of the rosary. And we're also going to take some time, though, we'll lead off by uh, getting Steve's fix on what's been going on in Israel. You just got back in time. Yeah, we got back October 5th, Yeah, turned on the news the next day, and heard that the roof had blown off. So Unbelievable. We, had, we were there for the whole month of September. You, I had we've a, not seen anything quite like this before, have we? Well, you know, earlier, not in the last decade or two, but yeah. it's, you know, 1968. Well, 67, you're right. And those kinds. But this is the first time Israel's declared war since yeah. 1968. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a much bigger deal. We've always had these cycles that we go to where there's some fighting and some missiles, and it's in the news, and then it's off the news, and Americans forget, and they're back in Israel in two months, and every, all the holy sites are full again. And then something happens, and all, all the trips are canceled, and then they come back again. This might be a little longer. This, yeah. uh, this one has a different feel to it. Even the people I know say it could take till the end of this year. Um, if you don't know what Israel's going to do, see Israel could flatten Gaza in a second. Yeah, if they if they wanted to, right. if they if they if they were to do uh, to uh, the residents of Gaza what Hamas did yes. on October seventh, right. they'd be blown out of the water. Right. Yeah, and, and the fact is, blown is that, into the water. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. They they have. A very similar view that we do of a just war theory is that you kill combatants, you don't kill innocent people. They could have gone in and and just obliterated Gaza, but they're they're not wanting to hurt people. And uh, the, but the Hamas uses them as human shields. They shoot missiles out of schools and hospitals. So when Israel retaliates to from where that missile came, they. You know, yeah. it's, they, it's more of a propaganda war, even in some ways, than it is of of military war, because Hamas is using, and they're succeeding in that. Just look at the yeah. universities across the country and the people who are supporting Hamas. Yeah, um, they're in, worse in than the, ISIS. In the lack, in the lack of authentic conversation about this, yeah. it, this is the left has seized this to make Israel uh, appear the aggressor. Yeah, without any respect for uh, the. The legal process going back to the founding of the right. state of Israel. People, I think people don't realize that the Palestinians. There was a plan for the Palestinians to get the land, right? And they rejected it. And Israel does not want that land, right? 
and, and they want the war over it. Yeah. So imagine this: you're see you see yourself as a besieged minority, which uh, Jewish people certainly felt after World War II. In 1948, they finally returned to their land. And it's not that they took it over. The United Nations, when they divided up the land after pro- World War II, they gave them There's that a land, process right. going right, yeah. right, even prior to 1948, there's a process. You've got the San Remo Conference, you have you know, the, 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 the Balfour Declaration, you have all these things that are going on. This is not like wild people just coming in and grabbing somebody right. else's territory. Um, but in 19, 1948, there is an arrangement, um, and the, whoever was speaking for the Palestinians at that time, that's another thing, too. We talk about the Palestinian people as though there was a, a well-developed people in that land with, a, with its own government and its own, there wasn't. own culture. There wasn't. There was no. a hodgepodge. Yep, and a lot of Jewish people still live there. And a lot of Jewish people have always lived there right. uh, over the centuries. So there's tremendous misunderstanding about uh, Israel's position here. And I, I, um, I'm also, I mean, I'm concerned, too, you have many Palestinian Christian friends. Yeah. How do they look at this? You, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. There are Christian Palestinians and there are Muslim Palestinians, very, two very distinct peoples. But even two days ago, a friend of mine, he's, he lives in the village of Shibli at the base of Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Sh- he sent me a picture of himself in an Israeli uniform. He says, I'm going out to fight for Israel. He is a Bedouin, Arab, Muslim. Yeah, He's a, a Muslim. And he said, my older brothers went and fought for Israel in wars before, and I'm going out to fight for Israel yeah. now. And so not, ev- not all Arabs, not all Muslims are against Israel. Those who live there appreciate Israel. Yeah. 20% of the population. They are. Is, is Arab, yeah, right? So over in, seven, in, 1.7 million people in the land, our Israeli yeah, citizens are Arab, and most of them are Muslims. Yeah. So not all Arab Muslims are against Israel. Those that live there appreciate Israel, yeah. most of them. It's the ones in Gaza and the West Bank that are protesting mostly. Yeah. But So it's really a sad thing. Hamas is, is just atrocious in what they're doing, and Israel needs to go in and clean out the hornet's yeah. nest. They really do, once and for all. And the problem is, is that those people in Gaza, they have overwhelmingly voted for Hamas. That's right. And so, you know, we feel sorry for them. Yes, but look at you. You also, choices have consequences. And when you vote people like these terrorists, Hamas, and they know what Hamas is, and they overwhelmingly vote them into power, you know, sometimes you have to live with the choices you make. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I can remember when Hamas was created in 1987, about the time I started this program, 1987. So you're trying to figure out exactly what this is about. Yeah. And they had the same line that um, Arafat had at that time, which is they don't recognize uh, Israel's right, right to existence. Right. But they were also involved a lot of humanitarian efforts, uh, so- social services that they were providing for people. Um, and that, of course, generated goodwill towards them. Yep. And now it's very clear, though, that they had the moral. They they have the the same moral authority that ISIS has. Yes. None. None. <laughs> and you know the fact is is that Israel's not going anywhere. It's a very powerful military country. They are determined. They have no intention to leave that land. That is their land, and they're going to stay there. Yeah. The Palestinians would be very smart to learn to work with Israel instead of against them, yep. because that if you take the money and the brains of the Jews and the resources and the labor of the Palestinians and you put those two together, you'd have one of the most wealthy, prosperous areas of the world. Yeah. But they have hated Israel more than they love their own kids. That's what I say, because they're not. if they would work with Israel, their kids would all have 
prosperity and opportunities. But what they're doing now is just setting their kids up to have no opportunities whatsoever. And it's too bad when people hate something more than they love their own kids yeah. to give them the opportunities. As, as is commonly said, uh, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Exactly. They've turned down, um, you know, one of the things, real big difference between the Jewish uh, leaders and the Arab leaders here is that uh, Jewish leaders were willing to settle for a half a loaf when they got it and worried about the rest of the loaf later. And the yep. Arab leaders always said, we're not going to act. We're not taking it unless you give me the whole thing. Yep. And, and now what they've got is has become less and less yep. over the decades yep. of yep. what's available. Exactly. It's, so it's a sad situation. It's very sad. So we need to pray for it. And yeah. I, I have a lot of friends over there, Jewish and uh, Palestinian. Are they worried? Most of them are in the Jerusalem area, which is kind of outside of the range of the rockets or mm-hmm. Nazareth. Um, but but it could ex- escalate now that my, uh, missiles are coming over from the, the Hezbollah north. in the north, yeah. and yeah. Iraq and Iran are sitting over on the east. Yeah, and um, well, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. because when it, when Israel finally does go in. When it finally goes in to clean that hornet nest out, it, that would be interesting to see what happens at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's something. <clears throat> it's something remarkable that we're seeing. It's something that requires our prayers and our solidarity with the suffering. Yep. Uh, let's make that clear. Um, yep. But uh, at the same time, uh, there is a history to this discussion. Yep. And, and I support I'm, Israel one hundred percent. Yeah. I'll say that to anybody. Yeah. I support Israel in this one hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, likewise, let's uh, let's talk about the rosary. Yeah, and um, I didn't used to like the rosary, you know, Al. When I was a Protestant, it was uh, no. You it, Catholics are praying these bre- vain bead, bead re- worship, re- yeah. repetitive yeah. prayers, and it's not to Jesus; it's to Mary. And yeah, you're doing double time around the rosary, <laughs> and you got real problems. Yeah, no, I I had the same attitude towards yeah. it. My mother, who was Catholic, once sent me a devotional guide to saying the rosary and i can remember writing her back and saying you know i'm not interested in this kind of thing yeah. kind of ashamed now yeah. uh because she re- she rarely reached out with any religious or spiritual yeah. things and uh, one time she did it i, I re- rebuffed it which i was a real jackass <laughs> <laughs> um, but we thought we were doing the right thing and then yeah. but to finally the lord brought us both around and he to, yeah. to the catholic faith Let's talk about the rosary and its practice. You have a unique perspective on it because you look even at the joyful mysteries and see that there's a two-edged sword there. What I what I like to do, El, is since I've been to the Holy Land so many times, and I like to study Scripture and walking in the land and even the way people live there even today is very similar in some ways to the way they did before. And just look at Mary's life. Um, not just on the surface, but maybe think about it a little more. For example, the the Annunciation we have that is a joyful mystery, but it also is there's a other side to that coin of where it could be also a, a sorrowful mystery because she's a 15 year old girl. She's not married. Now I'm, this is a big deal among people. They say she was married. Well, even the Gospels say that she had not moved in with Joseph yet. She was married because in, the, in that today we have a marriage ceremony. I went to my niece's wedding on Saturday. She wasn't married. She had that service. She was married. In Israel, there's two. In the, in the Middle East, there's two events. There's the first is the betrothal, where it's a today. If you're betrothed, it has it. 
it's in the church with the priest and a thousand family members are there. That's like our engagement, but it's much more formal. You're betrothed. And you become legally married at that point, but you don't move in with your husband to fulfill that marriage for probably at least a year. The consummation remains. Exactly. And not only just the consummation, but also the wedding mass. Yes, yes. So you have the wedding mass a year later, and then the the two parts of the wedding are made one, and then you go off on your honeymoon and you consummate it. So Mary had not moved in with Joseph. She was a 15-year-old girl. And... In Nazareth at the time, there couldn't have been more than 250 people living there. Even today, it's 100,000 people. But our friend Amr, who lives there, says everybody knows everything about everybody. <laughs> the, the rumor, the gossip mill, he said, I, I one day, I'll just say this quickly. I know we're short on time. Everybody was calling him while we were on the bus. I said, Amr, why are they all calling you in Nazareth? He said, well, because I just ordered a new red car for my wife. I haven't even told anyone I ordered a red car, but all these people are calling to congratulate me. <laughs> he said, so just imagine. Imagine, and he says this, just imagine, Mary steps out of her cave one day and she's showing that she's pregnant and everybody knows that that marriage has not been finished yet. And they're going to say, Mary, what happened to you? And Mary's going to say, well, I'm pregnant. And they're going to say, uh-oh. And even Joseph was in that position. Absolutely. And Mary's going to say, well, it was by the Holy Spirit. And they're all going to say, right. (laughs) Now, if I were Mary... I would have said to the angel, Dear angel, I will accept this mission God has given me, but will you please tell everyone else in Nazareth what you just told me? Because they're not going to believe it. And even when you get to John chapter 8 of the Gospels, there's a passage there where he's referred to often as the son of Mary and not of Joseph. You're the son of Mary. And that's that's almost a little bit of a slur because the father's not there. Yeah. But also that one point in John chapter 8, they said, we were not born in in infidelity. We were not born out of wedlock. Yeah. We're yeah. not bastard sons, basically, yeah. implying that he is. That's right. So Mary, knowing that she's going to face this gossip and these rumors, when she said yes to the angel, she was very courageous. This the, the, You've got to think of the Annunciation, not just as a blessing of the angel telling you you're going to have a baby, but what are the ramifications of saying yes is going in the Old Testament. If you were pregnant out of wedlock, you were stoned. Yeah, yeah. and so also there's another aspect to it too. Mary, I'm sure at this moment said, "Oh my goodness, I'm going to be a queen." Why? Because it wasn't the wife of the king who was the queen; it was the mother of, and she's just been told that her son is going to sit on the throne of David. There's not been a king on the throne for 600 years. Yeah, she's going to be the mother of the new king, and a mother is always a queen. <laughs> So, Mary, I thought, I think there's a lot of emotion in, yeah. in that message. And then the big thing is, and then the angel left her. And Mary's sitting there looking and saying, What just happened? No wonder she Mom! Has... <laughs> the one is, she ponders these things yeah. in her heart. Yeah. She had to because she was alone. Yeah. Steve, hold it there. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Steve Ray, our topic, Mysteries of the Rosary. We're looking over, well, we just talked about the Annunciation and how there's a lot of emotion going on at that moment. I'm Al Crestel. We'll be right back. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. 
And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Can you imagine receiving a phone call from your child's roommate while they are away at college telling you that your son or daughter had an accident and has been admitted to the emergency room, but they don't know anything more? In a panic, you call around the hospitals asking about your child. However, instead of being helped, you are told they cannot share information with you because of HIPAA privacy. You are terrified, worried sick for your child. How do you prevent this situation from happening to you? A healthcare durable power of attorney. This legal document will appoint you as their healthcare agent, granting you the rights to all information in an emergency and to make medical decisions on their behalf. As soon as you're able to, you need your child to sign these documents in order to prevent the nightmarish situation we've just discussed. They must be signed, stored, and easy to access so that you can have them at your fingertips the moment disaster strikes. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, teach me to pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, teach me to pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Thank you. 
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Steve Ray. We're talking about the mysteries of the Rosary, and we were well at the, at the Annunciation. This itself could take the rest of the afternoon. Absolutely, because this is such a rich um, event, and we were talking about Mary's um, the address of the angel uh, to Mary. Uh, you can, you know, he addresses her full of grace, and you can imagine her saying, "Huh," looking over his shoulder. Who's that? Yep. That that word actually, you know, in the rosary we say "Hail Mary, full of grace." That's not it's, we add the word "Mary." There. That's right. It says in in the original "Hail Kahari Tomene." Yeah, the one who is full of grace, and it has two parts to it: one who was full of grace and who still remains in that state today. And grace is the life of God. Yeah. So she is someone who has had the full life of life of God in her, mm-hmm. and it continues at this moment. And it's passive in the sense that it's done to her, not she did it. The Greek language is very precise. So John Paul II says that Mary got a new name just like Peter did. Yeah, yeah. He was Simon, now he's called Peter. Mary was Mary, now she's called Kahari Tomene. Yeah. And John Paul II says that's her name in the eyes of God. You, the one that I made full of grace that stays Jeez. that way. And for a 15-year-old girl, when an angel approaches, you know, the, the Greek Orthodox have a really interesting tradition. And the actual well where Mary went to was under their church in Nazareth. And they say that Mar- the angel came to Mary, and she was afraid and ran back home. She went to really? get water at the well. The angel came, and she ran back home. And then the angel came to her, and he says, don't be afraid. Yeah. You know, because she was like, she, yeah, I mean, I've never met an archangel. I don't know how I'd respond to an archangel, yeah. especially if he comes and says. And I also think that the angel came with his wings down, and he was, he was, he was bowing to her. We always see him, like, approaching her. Yeah. I think he was, he was bowing to her because he knew that little girl who she was. She was going to be his boss someday, the queen of the angels. He knew who she was. <laughs> and he didn't just come and talk to her like a 15-year-old, go, hey, guess what? You're going to have a baby. <laughs> He came with great reverence because he saw her as the queen of heaven soon to be and the queen mother. And then to say that the angel, the last verse is so poignant, and then the angel left her and the 15-year-old it's girl. Abrupt. That's an abrupt stopping place. It is. Yeah. And, and he's gone. And she doesn't, she's got, people think because she was the Immaculate Conception, she understands everything. She never got bit by a mosquito. You know, it means it's like she's throat, floating three feet off the ground. Right. She was a she was a real girl, and she did not understand all the implications right. of that. How do we know she didn't know everything? When they found Jesus in the temple, we have caused us great distress. Why have you done this to your yeah. father? She, they didn't know. They had to walk in by faith like we do. Being full of grace doesn't necessarily mean uh, you are all of a sudden omniscient. No. No, it has <laughs> no, nothing she, to do with that. She's still a 15-year-old girl. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I um, again, saying, continuing on, you know, we have the visitation that, oh, that follows. This is another hour we could do. Yeah. And so how long, how long is the distance? Well, people says she made haste and went to her relative Elizabeth. First of all, it doesn't say she was his, her aunt. It says she was a kinswoman, kinswoman yeah. which means I think Mary was of the priestly line because Zechariah was a high priest. Elizabeth also, they were from the tribe of Abijah, who was in the Aaronic priesthood line. If Mary is that close of a relative to Elizabeth, then she is also in the line of Aaron, the high priest. Hmm. And I, a lot 
lot of people say she's from the line of David. She may have been also. But they were very stickly about marrying outside of that if they were pure Aaronic priesthood. John the Baptist's parents were pure Aaronic priesthood. Mary went to visit her relative Elizabeth. Therefore, I suspect that Mary had uh, the blood of a priest in her, which means Jesus through Joseph gets the tribe of Judah, and from his mother the tribe of Levi or Aaron. He's priestly and and uh, kingly blood. Right. But anyway, she goes. It's a hundred miles, Al, to walk. We do it in a Mercedes bus in two hours. <laughs> and uh, and along the way, when we're driving, she's from, not out jogging. No, no, no. <laughs> and she had to join a caravan because there's no way she, a, a young girl could walk alone all that way. She had to join a caravan for the safety and the the supplies and everything that went along with that. And so when we're driving in the bus all the way down, I keep reminding people, oh, and don't forget, Mary's still walking. <laughs> because it's a hundred mile yeah. trip from the Galilee to Jerusalem. Ein Kerem, where she went, was just maybe four miles west of Jerusalem, out in the hills, the hill country of Judea. Yeah. And we don't have time to do this today. But if you compare the Ark of the Covenant stories of the Old Testament, oh, yeah. and what Luke tells us here, it the parallels are stunning. Unbelievable parallel. Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Yeah. The old Ark had the Word of God inscribed in stone. Mary is, has a Word of God inscribed in flesh in her. She's the Ark of the New Covenant. Yeah. And uh, this, it, this is all happening in the Rosary. How can you read the pray the Rosary without thinking of Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, coming with the Word of God inscribed in flesh in her womb? And, and also the pro-life argument. John the Baptist dances before yeah, the covenant. But how big was Jesus? Yeah. How big was he in the womb? Let's say she made haste. Okay, so he took five days to pack her little suitcase before she went there, you know, get her little sandals and everything together, and five days to walk there. So she's 10 days now. How big is baby Jesus in her womb? You still couldn't see him with your naked eye. You'd need a microscope. And yet John the Baptist leapt in front, and Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my zygote has come to me? No, it's not. (laughs) Who is the mother of my Lord? He's already in your womb. At the Annunciation, another thing about that is that's when the incarnation took place. It didn't take place in Bethlehem. That's nine months later when Mary introduced him. But he became man at the incarnate, at the Annunciation. And on the altar there, Nazareth, it says, and the word became flesh here. <laughs> and so Mary already has the word of God, the Son of God, in her womb, even though you couldn't have seen it with your naked eye. And Elizabeth said, who am I that the mother of my Lord, who's already in your womb, has come to me? This yeah. is one of the most strong biblical pro-life arguments yeah, we can Yeah, I agree. Have. I agree. So when you th- pray the visitation mystery, think of these things. Um, and then we have, of course, the birth. Na- oh, yeah. Nativity. Um, you you uh, raised the question of what tomb they passed yes, uh, entering see, be, Bethlehem. This is the beauty of proximity and of being in the land and knowing the, where things are. Two uh, thousand years before Mary and Joseph came down the Hebron Road, which is the same road we drive on our bus from Jerusalem into Bethlehem, they were coming along on camels. And Rachel, Jacob's uh, Jacob is Abraham's grandson. She's pregnant, nine months pregnant, coming into Bethlehem. Huh. Now I hope people are starting to go ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and she gets off the camel, gives birth to Benjamin, and she dies mm. in childbirth. And they bury that lady on the side of the road. Now, all the way through, that's interesting because 800 years later, King Saul lost his donkeys and went to the prophet Samuel and said, can you help me find my donkeys? 800 years later, Samuel says, go to the tomb of Rachel. Interesting. 
And they had yeah. been in Egypt for 450 years. How did they remember where she was? Yeah. They don't forget those things. But the, my point is, Mary and Joseph are now coming down the same road, and she's riding on a beast of burden, and she's nine months pregnant. And Joseph and Mary look over, and they see the tomb of their matriarch. Yeah. And she died in childbirth, the same place Mary's going to give birth to a baby now. Please, Lord, don't let that happen to Mary. Oh, and you say, oh, she doesn't have anything to worry about. She's giving birth to the Son of God. Yeah, then why did the angel come to Joseph in the cave and say, quickly, quickly, flee to Egypt. Herod's going to kill the baby. There was danger. There wasn't any insurance or security. Joseph had to get up and take her away to Egypt because the baby would have been killed otherwise. We think of them as having perfect equanimity in all these situations, you know, and we we miss the text. Yeah. What the text is clearly saying, that this is a heightened alert. Yes. You, you, apprehension. And Get, you see that your where your great-grandmother died giving yeah. birth to a baby. Now I'm here with my wife has given birth to a baby. Oh, my goodness. I hope that doesn't happen to me. And you got to think also in the nativity. What about the money situation? Poor Joseph. He's a poor man. Even when they went to the presentation, which is the next one, they, they didn't have enough money for a lamb, so they had to bring two pigeons. So Joseph ha- doesn't have a master cr- a visa credit card that he can charge it and pay it off later. He's coming down all the way to Bethlehem wondering, how he's going to finance all of this. And then God tells him, go to Egypt. And now he's going to say, well, my first thought would have been, Lord, where am I going to get the money to do that? That's a 250-mile journey, and I'm going to be there for 18 months or so until hair dye. How am I going to afford that? Yeah, And that's where I think we look back at the wise men who brought those three gifts Gold, incense, frankincense, and myrrh, which would have been worth a small fortune. So that that becomes the, uh, the, the, the God's provision the to finance provision the for the yeah. trip. Uh, but who thinks of that when they pray the nativity mystery of the nativity? They just think right. of a little baby in a in a manger. But no, there's so much. What's gold. a manger? So it's a food dish for sheep. <laughs> I mean, I, I yes, I just last week I gave a talk on this, and I said to the ladies, "How many of you, when you gave birth to your baby, wrapped them up and put them in a very." into a nasty um, manger where sheep slobber all over it, you know, <laughs> spit and slobber all over it, and, and you're walking around in little round things on the floor of the cave that look like raisins, but they're not, because sheep have been in there all the time. Very unsanitary. But I think Mary put the baby in the manger because she's saying that he's going to become your food. Yeah. 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 That's what it's a food dish. Yeah. And why? And by the way, when you th- think of the nativity, who, why was the why were the shepherds the first one to be told about the birth of this Jesus? Because the shepherds are always the first to know about the birth of a lamb. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's very good. Yeah. Um, again, we're going over the mysteries of the rosary with Steve Ray, uh, looking at the nativity presentation, and, and been pointing out aspects of these mysteries which are not immediately apparent to most of us when we're praying them, uh, or even when we read the, of the events themselves in Scripture, the presentation in the temple. Yeah, this is... Now, back, she's a 15-year-old girl. She's just got a little pudgy little baby in her hands, 40 days old. All the mothers out there who've had babies know what it's like to hold a 40-day-old baby in your hands. He's already shed his blood for the people already once. Mm -hmm. We think he shed his blood on the cross. He shed his blood at least four times. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He shed his blood for the first time for us as a human 
being who's come to be a sacrifice. He shed his blood at the circumcision. He shed his blood at the rock at Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood, when he was whipped and beaten by Pilate. And finally, he lost all of his blood at the cross. So in the presentation of the temple, he's just been circumcised a few days earlier. This is the 40th day. They don't have enough money the family, Joseph and Mary, to bring a lamb. You're supposed to bring a lamb to offer for this child, you know, for cleansing from the, after the birth. But they don't have enough money. So all of the people out there listening to us right now that are having financial struggles, that aren't making a big enough paycheck to meet their needs, this is what the Holy Family did. They had to bring pigeons because that's all they could afford. Yeah. So here they are very poor, even wondering how they're going to survive maybe the next few days. And then the, this grizzled old prophet, comes up to her, and he said, This baby of yours will be a contradiction for many, and a sword will pierce your soul also. <laughs> what? Well, what does that mean? Well, good day to you, too. <laughs> we'll come back and continue conversation. Steve Ray, my guest, Mysteries of the Rosary, our topic. We're uh, looking at the joyful mysteries. We're also pointing out some stories that uh, run through these mysteries. We'll come back, of course... These are the joyful mysteries, but what does uh, uh, what is Mary told here? That a sword will pierce your soul also. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. ChatGPT is the latest craze in artificial intelligence technology, and we've seen everybody from students to pastors to even teachers using it to assist in their work. In the last Ave Maria Radio Poll of the Week, we asked you if you think this is a good idea, and not surprisingly, the vast majority of you said no, you don't like where this is trending. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Connection with Teresa Tomio. People have this false notion that after the Supreme Court came out with, of course, Roe v. Wade and gave us abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy, that all of a sudden all of these regulations were put into place. When all of these independent abortion facilities popped up all over the country, when Planned Parenthood started opening its doors and doing abortions legally after 1973, that it was always so safe and wonderful. 
And they believe this because they don't see these stories about the botched abortions, the women who have lost their lives, the women who have been violated because their information has been tossed out in the street with the garbage and the medical waste. Not to mention the fact that the regulations that are on the books are not even enforced and rarely are these facilities inspected and yet people think that they're so safe. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Like the saints, do our loved ones who have gone before us still participate in the living tradition of prayer? The Catholic Catechism says they participate by the witness of their lives, the transmission of their writings, and their actual prayer right now. Witnesses in heaven contemplate God, praise Him, and constantly care for those they have left on earth. When saints enter into the joy of their master, they are put in charge of many things. The Catechism asserts that the saints' intercession is their most exalted service to God's plan. Thus, we should be asking them to intercede for us and for the entire world. Sometimes personal charisms of witnesses to God's love for mankind are passed on as the spirit of Elijah was passed on to Elisha and John the Baptist in order that their followers may have a share in their spirit. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, with me Steve Ray, talking about the mysteries of the rosary, going over some of the angles uh, on the mysteries here that you may not uh, may not immediately jump out at you. But we're at the presentation in the temple, and again, this Mary, 15 years old, uh, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, um, uh, he, he's been circumcised now, and this is under this is a joyful mystery so this is what makes it a little paradoxical <laughs> yeah. it's also also the, one of the sorrows of mary yeah. is, is, so set right. this up for us well when that when that uh, prophet comes to her and says a sword will pierce your soul also what 15 year old girl with her brand new little baby is going to have any idea what that means yeah. And I think that it says Mary pondered these things in her heart. She treasured all of the things that had happened. She remembered them. I don't think that she realized what that meant until her son was on the cross. And I remember when you came to the Holy Land with us, and you got up there, even with your wheelchair and everything, you got up there and you sat there in front of the place where Jesus was crucified, and right to the right of that is a statue of Mary with with haunting eyes. It's one of the most unbelievable statues uh, it's in a glass case and there's a big sword going right into her chest yeah yeah and i, I think that's where she realized what it meant a sword will pierce your soul yeah, also yeah. your heart right at calvary yeah right up at calvary yeah so yeah. that's that's the presentation so there's so many things to think about and the presentation that I mean, are just beyond that mary just brought the baby to the temple she grew in meaning her understanding grew yeah. throughout the, the life of jesus i'm sure and um uh Let's uh, let's go to the finding in the temple. You referred to that earlier, uh, which is a good example that she's still figuring, trying to figure these things exactly. out. Exactly. So she's got a twelve-year-old boy. They go to the temple. They're on their way home. And by the way, we're all the big hubbub about a synod these days. The word synod is only, is used one time in the Bible. It's the word synodia. And it's in this passage of finding Jesus because it says that when they went back the first day when they came together at night, 
Joseph and Mary came together, that means the men and the women traveled separately. Yeah. The women were in a group and the men were in a group. And at night, the families came back together. And Mary says, where's Jesus? And Joseph said, I thought he was with you. And she said, no, I thought he was with you. Oh, my goodness, we've lost the Son of God. <laughs> <laughs> and it distressed them because it even says that she was distressed. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't know. She, she had to learn things yeah. as she went along. The, the, why would, for just real quickly, why would they have lost her? Because Jesus, him, because Jesus was 12. And a boy goes through bar mitzvah at that time. When you're a little boy, you travel with the women and the children. When you become bar mitzvah age, you travel with the men. Jesus is right in the middle. Mary thought right. that she was with the men. The men thought she he was still with Mary. And so they had to go back and find him. And here he is discussing these things with the, the top-notch professors of the University of Jerusalem, so to speak. And she doesn't understand. She even says, I don't understand. And he says, don't you know I'm in my father's house? Which is another thing that this should teach us is that the temple and the Jewish people is not something to be discarded like your guest was on just before me, yeah. Mr. Feingold, um, because they, Jesus said, I love that this is my father's house. He, he didn't say, I've come now, so just get rid of it. He said, I, I'm here because I love my father's house. Don't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? Yeah. So there's so much going on even at the finding in the temple, which is... When you pray, when the, um, this is a joyful mystery, but it's also a sorrowful. When you do the the state, the a devotion of the Doloros, the seven sorrows. The of seven Mary, sorrows. Yep, is losing Jesus in the temple is one of the sorrows, and so can you imagine? You're almost twenty four hours. You have no idea where that son is, and that. Oh, any of us who think we've <laughs> displaced one of our kids knows what adrenaline pump. Goes into yes, our and you'd bodies. say, but it was a different society. They didn't have to worry. But yeah, but look at the Good Samaritan story of the man who went down and he was bushwhacked and yeah, robbed. And yeah. people did those kind of things back in those days, too. That's right. So you had to be afraid for your kids. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's jump to the Luminous Mysteries, see if we can get a few of those in. Right. Um, the Baptism in the Jordan. Uh, this is, uh, again, the Luminous Mysteries that were John Paul II. Uh, formalized as part of the rosary, uh, starts out with this baptism in the Jordan. Uh, this is this is a moment in history that I wouldn't believe if it hadn't been written. I would have said, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Right, exactly. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah, Why yeah. did he do that? Part of it is he's prefiguring what's going to happen to him. So again, a joyful thing being baptized also has its negative side because even in Christian theology, going down into the water means you've died and you're being raised to new life when you come out. And Jesus, this baptism is telling us what's going to happen, that it's a prefiguration of him dying for us. And then he's going to be raised back up out of the water yeah. by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in a way, this is also sorrowful because it's reminding him of what's going to happen to him in three years. That's right. That he's going to be killed and buried. <clears throat> and, and shortly, I mean, and shortly after his baptism, uh, we've got temptation yeah. in the wilderness in the beginning of the public ministry. Yep. So this is kind of a DNA. Uh, baptism is dying, rising to life. Yep. 
Yeah. And it's exactly right. And it's also it's the revealing of the Trinity in a very palpable way yeah. because you have Jesus the Son and you have the voice from the Father coming down. He, in a way, he's anointing him through the hands of John the Baptist, who's 100% ironic priesthood. So he, and, and in fact, the book of Acts says that Jesus was anointed by John at the river. He's a priest putting it, he's a priest baptizing Jesus. So this is very significant. Which is also the, the anointing. It is anointed. Yeah. That's where Jesus was anointed. As what? As a as a uh, a prophet. No, he's anointed as a priest here. Because at Mount Tabor the voice of God announced him as the prophet. Listen to him. And in John chapter twelve, when he's riding the the donkey and like Solomon the king, yep, yep. it's the voice of God there says I have glorified my name, will glorify it again. Three times God spoke from heaven, and each time it confirms Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Amen. So Beautiful. here at the river, he's, he's declaring him as the priest, with John the Baptist, 100% ironic priesthood, is the one who's there doing the service. And the Holy Spirit comes down, so you have the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all there confirming the life of Jesus. And some people say that Jesus didn't know what, who he was until that happened. That's a bunch of baloney. Yeah. Jesus knew from the very first moment that who he was, that he was sent on a mission from God. And, and lastly, why? There's, this is another whole. This is the lowest place on the face of the earth, by the way. I think it's really interesting that Jesus goes to the very lowest place on the earth to eventually take us all the way up to the highest into heaven. That is great. This is 1,250 yeah. feet below sea level. If Everest is the highest place, this valley, the Jordan River, is the lowest on the face of the earth. Why? Did the Pharisees come down? And, oh, and by the way, it says all of Jerusalem came down yeah, to see him. Yeah, It's like all have this sinned. Was a, you know, this was the, a big deal. It was. And it's 25 miles from Jerusalem down to the sea. And you go down 4,250 feet. And then you got to go all the way back up that 4,000. It's going to take you two or three days to get down there walking. So to say that all of Jerusalem went down to see John, he's no, he's on the headlines of the Jerusalem Post every day. This guy is. He's and they say, "Are you Elijah?" Why? Because Elijah wore a camel hair robe and a leather belt. John the Baptist wore a camel hair robe and a leather belt. The only two in the Bible that it says that about. And Elijah was assumed into heaven from that exact same place. Mm-hmm. John chose the clothes he wore and where he baptized so that you would relate him to John to Elijah. Why? Because the last prophet, Malachi, the last thing he says is, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah will return. Right. Jesus said, in case you don't know, John the Baptist was the Elijah who is to return. Just look at the way he's dressed. Look where he is. And the Pharisees went there and they, they said, you know, there's the hill where Elijah went up into heaven. This guy looks just like him and he sounds like him. He said, they said to him, are you Elijah? He went up from here. Did you just come back down? Yeah. yeah. And all of this is happening at the baptism. There's so much happening at the baptism. And by the way, the Essenes, who are less than three miles away in the city of Qumran, don't think they didn't know about Jesus first because John the Baptist was associated with the yeah. Essen community. He would have gone right over and said, look at I just... The dove came down on the sky. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It is interesting. Uh, they had to know what was going on. Yeah, they had to. Yeah. They were looking for the Messiah. Yeah. So was, this is. Uh, we, do we have any clear references to any of the Essenes in the New Testament? Well, they they Jesus had his home 
his last supper in the home of an Essene mm-hmm. because they went in the Essene gate to get to where he was going. And it says, look for a man who's carrying a jar of water. Now, if you don't know the land and the culture, that doesn't mean anything. But when you understand the context of things, women carried water. Men didn't carry water. Yeah, so there's a sign, a signature right there. You would it's never a find a, a man carrying a jug of water. That was a woman's job. Yeah. But... It was a celibate community. The Essenes didn't marry. And they were celibate, so they had a man had to go get the water for their community because they didn't have women in it. Right. Very good. So this is – and the whole aspect of the – there's a great book by John Bergsma called Jesus yeah. and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. And, um, And he shows how more and more as we study the scrolls, we see – especially in the Gospel of John, how Jesus and John the Baptist were thoroughly um, influenced by the Essene community at Qumran and their spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, that is a great book. Um, I recommend it highly, too. Um, let's see, we've got about three minutes left. And, uh, we're in the, <laughs> and we've only gotten into the yeah, first let's go, six. Let's, let's go to the Wedding Feast of Cana. Okay. We'll stay in order here. Um, you point out that Mary bookends the ministry of Jesus. I yes. think that's beautiful. In the Gospel of John especially, yeah. and I, you know, I have a commentary on John, which I loved writing, and it's it, the two times Mary is mentioned there, and I used to, as a Protestant, say, well, the Bible didn't mention Mary so much, you guys make way too big of a deal of her. But I would say now that it's not always how often she's mentioned, right. because Mary took a back seat. She was a quiet, contemplative woman. But it's where she's mentioned sometimes yes. that are most important. She is mentioned the first time at Cana, where Jesus is still not known. Right. And she says, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is interesting. She wants a miracle. She says they have no wine. He knows exactly what she's, t- she's telling him to do. And he said, my hour hasn't come, no, Mom. She doesn't even talk to him. She ignores him. She goes over to the servants, and she, she kind of like just waved at her son. She went over to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you, and then she walked out and slammed the door. Which means, do what I told you, son. Mm-hmm. And in the Middle East, nobody disobeys their mother. She is that. She is the father may be de facto head of the family, but the mother is the heart of the family. And just like in my big fat Greek wedding, when they said, "Let the husband say he's the head," that's okay. But we women, we the <laughs> neck, and we tell the head which yeah. way to turn. Yeah. See, and this is the women in the Middle East. They're the, they're the ones that control things really. And so she tells Jesus to start his earthly ministry even though he says no. And in verse 11, at the end of this passage, and then his disciples saw his glory, his first sign, and they believed in him. And from that moment on, Jesus went out to serve his heavenly Father in his ministry. And what does that mean? A moment of sorrow for Mary. When she said, do whatever he tells you, I'm convinced she had tears coming down her eyes because she said, Goodbye, son. Well, he ties it to the, his hour. That's right. So he ties it to his death. Yep. When Mary said, do whatever he does, and he does the first miracle, the clock is ticking now. Yes. The, 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 the clock or the timer, tick, 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 mm-hmm. ticking mm-hmm. towards the... But not and only she'll that. she'll be there. Yeah, and she'll be there. That's the end. She's bookends the beginning of his earthly ministry and the last moment of his earthly ministry. But during that three years, she's lost her son. He doesn't come home with her and have dinner anymore. She doesn't walk with her through Nazareth listening to the birds. He's out now surrounded by people, and she lost her son. She said goodbye to him at Cana with tears in her eyes. Great. Steve, thanks. You're Uh, welcome. We'll do this again next week. Okay. Stay with us uh, while we're still in the month of October. Good. Let's do it. I'd love it. Steve Ray, again, will be with us next week, continuing our look at the mysteries of the rosary. 
This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Hey, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being here. Do remember, you can follow up on any of the conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. There we have the Cresta Guest Archives, where you have you know contact information for our guests, uh, backup information uh, on the interviews, and then we have the online bookstore, so you can follow up the books we talked about with Steve, his commentaries on Genesis and on John, uh, his testimony story in Crossing the Tiber, his defense of the papacy upon this rock, and also uh, Dr. Feingold's books uh, on the mystery and glory of Israel are there as well. So uh, take a look at it. Uh, There's a lot of great material available that will enrich your understanding of who Jesus is, will enrich your appreciation for the church that he established. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.